Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Dr. Suzanne Mettler, who is the Clinton Rossiter Professor of American Institutions at Cornell University in New York. Her current book, The Submerged State, How Invisible Government Policies Undermine American Democracy, explores how indirect incentives, subsidies, and tax breaks have come to dominate U.S. social policy, but yet remain unseen and underappreciated by most Americans. Today, we discuss her research on the submerged state and explore what it means for American democracy. Thanks for joining us today. So good to be here. Thank you. Well, your work um, has really been cited all over the media in recent months um, as the presidential debates have been going on and issues of government spending and social programs have been making headlines. Um, And so I thought just for any readers or any listeners who might have missed that, um, maybe you could tell us just a little bit right off the bat, what is the submerged state? Well, the submerged state refers to many of the policies that we have in the United States. I'm thinking particularly of social welfare types of policies Mm -hmm. that, by their design, are not very visible to citizens. And they're not visible because they're either channeled through the tax code or they're channeled through subsidies to private organizations, which in turn distribute uh, social services or uh, some kinds of opportunities to citizens instead of government doing it directly. Mm-hmm. So as a result, they're pretty hidden to most people. Okay. And what would be like one or two examples that our listeners might know about but maybe didn't realize they were part of the submerged state? Well, one example, uh, many of these examples are in the tax code. Mm -hmm. Uh, The three largest ones are the home mortgage interest deduction, uh, and then the tax-exempt status of employer-provided benefits uh, for health coverage and for uh, retirement savings. Mm Mm-hmm. So these, you know, uh, President Eisenhower uh, signed into law the formalization of this uh, policy area for private health coverage, which means that people get less in income than they would because instead their employer gives it to them in the form of health coverage, Mm -hmm. but they don't have to pay taxes on it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's a special uh, tax savings, it's a social benefit, but most people don't think of it that way because mm-hmm. of the way it's in which it's delivered. Hmm. Okay, and so the, the submerged state hasn't necessarily always existed, or it, it's grown, right, in more recent years. So tell us kind of how that's come about. How has the submerged state grown and, and become more significant? Yeah, well, the submerged state has been around for a long time. It's sort of a quintessentially very American kind of development. Mm. And these social welfare benefits began with the uh, original federal income tax code in 1913. Mm -hmm. The home mortgage interest deduction was part of the original one. Mm. More of them were added in the middle of the 20th century. But I would say that over the past uh, 30 years, it's been the way that we create and expand policies. Mm. And that's happened because it's become more politically challenging to expand direct social government benefits, Hmm. um, those that are more visible. And so uh, whereas it used to be more conservative members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, that promoted the submerged state, more recently it's been more mainstream Democrats as well because they feel that it's the only way that they can manage to um, create benefits that help more Americans. Mm -hmm. So 
as we've seen the welfare state, kind of the the real visible state, I guess, in terms of, you know, welfare checks and food stamps and things like that, those things have, you know, fallen out of favor and some of those have been cut back really significantly. You're saying that these other kind of more hidden tax code policies have been, has sort of replaced or um, become the, the way that policymakers have advanced benefits. That's exactly right. You mentioned welfare. So Mm -hmm. welfare benefits uh, for the average family were declining in real terms uh, for several decades Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their value. But meanwhile, policymakers did create and then quite dramatically expand the earned income tax credit Mm -hmm. um, to serve some of the same purposes going to a lot of the same people, but through this very different form Mm -hmm. um, that was more acceptable to conservatives. and uh, but which is is uh, much more hidden. Mm-hmm. So say a little bit more about the earned income tax credit because some listeners may not be as familiar yeah. with that. Well, the earned income tax credit is really an exception to the rule in the submerged state, mm-hmm. in that it benefits low income people. Mm-hmm. Most of the submerged state uh, benefits high income people the most, even mm-hmm. if a lot of middle middle income people receive some benefits from those same policies. Uh, but the earned income tax credit allows people who uh, work for low incomes to have those incomes supplemented Hmm. with uh, funds from government. So at tax time, uh, they may owe little or no taxes, but actually get a benefit through the tax system that Hmm. corresponds to their earnings. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, you know, it's important to know, but it's interesting that it's something that, you know, unless maybe you're a recipient of that or or you're paying real attention to policy, you just may Mm -hmm. not even know that that exists. so t- tell us a little bit about how you came upon this topic and, you know, where did you come up with this idea of this this concept of the submerged state in terms of even that phrase? Because it's so sort of uh, catchy and it really kind of captures something in that. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, by no means the first person to study these policies. Uh, Christopher Howard had been focusing on the tax expenditure dimensions of these and and was calling them the hidden welfare state for some time. Hmm. Jacob Hacker has studied what he calls the divided welfare state, looking at these social benefits that are channeled through employers. So they had done a lot of that groundwork in terms of looking at how those policies were originally formulated. But what made me stumble upon this concept of the submerged state was that I was thinking about the Obama presidency. Hmm. And here Obama was elected amid such hopes and strong support that uh, ran very high when Mm -hmm. he was first inaugurated. Uh, But then he, you know, set out uh, to accomplish these major goals he'd promised and was really quite successful in doing so. But the puzzle to me was that even as he was accomplishing those things, his public support seemed to be falling off, withering, Mm -hmm. his supporters disappearing. And meanwhile, this insurgent movement of the Tea Party was fueling up of an anti-government movement right in the midst of of uh, a major downturn in the economy, Mm -hmm. Um, so different from what we experienced, for example, during the Great Depression, when the public mobilization was all calling out for more government involvement. So in trying to make sense of this, I was thinking about the different policy areas in which Obama was trying to make a difference, and I realized that the task that he faced was very different from what earlier presidents who were reformist-minded have faced. Because what he had to do in order to create new policies was first to either destroy or restructure existing policies. Hmm. So it's not that we had nothing in place already in these policy areas. We had uh, large policies in place, but they were not helping ordinary Americans very much. Hmm. They were mostly helping vested interests, 
powerful industries and high-income people much more than than others. Mm -hmm. So in each of these policy areas that I then focus on in this book, um, he had to try to do battle with this submerged state. And so I uh, came up with a term as I was trying to describe what these dynamics are like. Yeah, and it's a great, I think it's a great phrase. It really captures it. So that, that, that part about Obama, and it really has been puzzling. You know, why aren't people seeing these ad- advances as really good for them? And and that's one of the things that you looked at in the book was, you know, how is it that people who are receiving or are benefiting from some of these policies not understanding the good that government's doing for them? So maybe talk about some of the evidence that you brought to bear on, on that issue in the book. Yes, well, a few years ago, I had done a survey uh, a national survey for the purpose of trying to get at people's attitudes about government social programs. Mm. The very first question in that survey, and you have to picture that you're, you know, at home probably cooking dinner when some pollster calls you on the phone and they ask you this question, have you ever utilized a government social program? Uh-huh. And what we found was that uh, about only about 43% of people said yes, everybody else said no. But then as the survey proceeded, we asked them about 21 different specific federal social policies. Have they ever benefited from them? And in fact, it turned out that 94% of the respondents had utilized at least one of them. Wow. Most people had utilized an average of four of them and a combination of the more submerged ones and the more direct ones over time. Hmm. And so it was really um, interesting and surprising that people we're more likely to say no up front to that first question. Uh, so uh, when I looked at how people answered, um, people who had utilized the submerged benefits were much more likely to say no to the first question uh-huh. than those who'd used the ones that are administered more directly by government, where government's role is more direct. And in that survey, various other kinds of indicators as well that all pointed in the same direction, mm. that when people benefit from these policies, they really don't recognize that government is doing something for them. Right. So if you don't have your EBT card you know, from the government where you very directly go and buy your groceries or whatever, you don't see the way quite as easily the way that you're benefiting and what government's doing for you. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then, um, so, I mean, you argue in the book that the submerged state really isn't good for American democracy. So say a little bit about that. Right. Well, It's not good for uh, a few reasons. For one thing, because citizens are not very aware of it, as a result, they're not mobilized around these benefits. Mm. Uh, And so they're not mobilized to try to do something to, you know, protect ones that might help them or Mm -hmm. people that they care about and purposes they care about in society. Uh, They're also unaware of something else that I haven't been able, haven't had a chance yet to mention about the submerged state, which is that it benefits mostly high-income people. Right. And it turns out from some work I've done that once people are informed of that, they're much less supportive of these policies. Hmm. Although they're actually more supportive of policies like the EITC that benefit low-income people. And support grows across the board, uh, including among high-income people when they realize that about the EITC. So, So the policies are not democratic because they're hidden. They don't allow people to uh, form meaningful opinions about them Mm -hmm. and to take political action on them. But at the same time, these policies, it turns out, are very visible to the vested interests that benefit Hmm. from them quite dramatically. Hmm. So if you take the home mortgage interest deduction, for example, 
um, while it, it benefits high-income people more than low- and moderate-income people, uh, those who benefit the most are uh, the Realtors Association mm. and uh, the Home Builders Association and so on. And they make campaign contributions uh, every year to candidates on both sides of the aisle. They do a lot of lobbying. They invest a lot of resources in their political capacity so that when that policy is ever threatened, mm-hmm. uh, they can quickly mobilize to defend it. Mm. Uh, and so that uh, reinforces a very de- undemocratic kind of government where mm. these vested in, in dis- uh, interest groups are much more powerful than ordinary citizens. Hmm. And so another, I know another question you asked in the book was, well, what difference would it make if the submerged state was revealed, if people knew more about it? So say something, you did an, an experiment mm-hmm. along those lines, so tell us a little yes. bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I uh, found from this research, from this experiment, that when people are informed with just a little bit of simple information uh, about what these policies are and their distributive impact, who benefits Mm -hmm. from them the most, that support grows for those that benefit low-income people, and opposition grows for those that mostly benefit high-income people. Um, And it makes me think that if policymakers would talk about these policies more in Mm -hmm. simple, clear, straightforward language and speak about their distributive impact, that it could make a difference, that more people could form opinions about them and they could form opinions that make sense for them given their uh, own incomes and their uh, political views and so on. Mm-hmm. I'm curious um, what you think about uh, the Obama administration and their prospects for um, being able to better communicate, because he's taken some flack, right, for not communicating very well about the gains that he's made for people in his policies. I'm wondering what you think, you know, with the election coming up, what what the chances are that he'll, you know, be able to communicate some of that. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so any thoughts? Well, I've uh, read a lot of Obama's speeches on each of these issues. And when he does address them, um, he does so in very clear, simple language. And he does so very well, more than other political leaders that I'm aware of. But uh, he did not speak about them so much, you know, even when each of uh, these reform efforts was in process. Um, but, you know, a lot of people criticize the, the White House for that, mm-hmm. uh, for the communications efforts. I think it's only a piece of uh, the problem. The bigger problem with the submerged state is that these policy designs inherently make them hidden to mm-hmm. ordinary citizens, and their delivery does as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that moving forward, besides talking about them more, which is important, that we also uh, should have delivery systems that reveal them more clearly to mm-hmm. citizens. For example, I think that after people pay their taxes, that they should receive a tax receipt that mm-hmm. lays out for them what their benefits were from mm-hmm. each of these uh, deductions and credits that they would have received through the tax system. Huh. So if someone's able to have a piece of paper where they see a breakdown, I got this much from that credit and this much. Because, you know, everyone gets excited around tax time, and if you get something back, you know, it's, but it's usually people just think about the lump sum check and maybe not exactly where all of it is coming from. Yeah, and when you get a lump sum check, I think that you're, a person's perception is, oh, well, I owed less in taxes than I thought. Right. But if there was this breakdown, then people could see that they're actually receiving social benefits through the tax code. Right. These are just like direct social benefits in accounting terms. They have the same impact on how much money the federal government has, whether mm. it's 
writing people checks for welfare, uh, for example, or unemployment insurance, or whether it's collecting less from them at tax time, it's a wash. It has the same impact hmm. in accounting terms. They're also the same as social benefits in that uh, the tax expenditures are tailored for particular groups of people who uh, our policymakers have decided are worthy of uh, government benefits uh, because of some activity they're engaged in or some characteristics of their group. Uh, so they're the same thing, but people, I think, experience them as quite different, right? differently. No, I think that's I think that's very true. And obviously, some of those direct welfare benefits now are just so highly stigmatized. I mean, we saw that come out in the Republican debates in some very brutal ways, you know, in some some of the ways that um, some of those programs and, and their recipients were um, were painted. So, you know, and I think that's interesting for myself, because I know being a quote unquote, poor graduate student, my husband and I have benefited from like the making work pay uh, tax credit. And I'm like, I know we didn't overpay the government that much money, but the returns we've gotten have been as a result of that. So it's personally, it's really interesting to think about um, having received that. But I wonder, like you said, how many people really make that connection? You were actually one of 12% of Americans who made that connection. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It turns out, yes, because the making work pay tax credit went to most working Americans as part of the stimulus bill in 2009. Uh, That was particularly hidden because behavioral economists in the Obama administration thought that people would be more likely to spend the money Uh if instead of it coming in a lump sum at tax time, a single check, if they got a little bit extra in their paychecks all through the year. Uh Uh, So that's how it was delivered. And as a result, it was completely hidden to most people. So when people were surveyed a year later, it turns out only 12% of people knew that the Obama administration had done this, reducing their taxes. Wow. Too bad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's a classic case of hiding what government does. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, Well, are there any other interesting findings from this research that we haven't covered yet that you want to mention for our listeners? Uh, Well, uh, you know, there there are many. uh, And I guess... You know, what I would say, I've talked about how it's problematic for democracy. It's also um, problematic for reform efforts. It makes reform really difficult. Mm -hmm. What happened for Obama was, you know, he went forward and did the kinds of reforms he'd promised in his campaign. Mm -hmm. But what people were seeing was the interest groups around the table with Mm -hmm. him, uh, the insurers, the pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, in the process of healthcare reform. And it looked like politics as usual. It looked like everything they thought Obama had promised he wasn't going to engage in. Mm. The problem is when you have to restructure the submerged state in order to do something that's more inclusive and more helpful to ordinary Americans, you have to actually engage with uh, these vested interests. So he had no choice but to do that. But it's very unsavory to watch. Mm -hmm. And so it really turned people off. Hmm. And uh, so it's it's very problematic. It makes reform really difficult, and it makes people all the more disenchanted, disillusioned with government. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you've mentioned a couple things in terms of what might be the solution, like communicating very clear, straightforward information and maybe the, the tax receipt idea. Are, do you see any other ways forward as far as either restructuring or, or making the submerged state more visible? Um, well, I would say that... Uh, Each time a policy is being created, we ought to be thinking about how are citizens going to perceive this Mm -hmm. and what is its impact going to be in that regard. Um, Because what we do in the United States is we we tend to make our benefits 
particularly those for moderate and high income people, rather hidden. Mm. Uh, while taxes themselves are fairly obvious. Hmm. And over the course of time, that really undermines support for government. Right. And so it becomes more and more difficult to do things that collectively, as a society, we recognize we have grave social and economic problems, and we ought to have ways to address them. But it's very difficult to pull together and to create public policies that would do that because of both people's um, attitudes about government's ability to to make a difference um, when they're not seeing what it does and because of these vested interests that are empowered by the submerged state. So the submerged state and people's support for government are very intertwined. Yes, exactly. Point of view. That's right. Well, what's uh, what's next on your research agenda? What are you on to now? I'm now working on a book that I'd actually been working on before the submerged state for several years, which is about uh, higher education policy or Hmm. really student aid policy. And uh, the question is, well, I had done a book a few years ago about the GI Bill, Mm -hmm. and I looked at policies through the middle of the 20th century, like the GI Bill, that were helping to expand access to college across income groups. Uh Uh, And this has been an American tradition uh, that actually dates way back to land grants from the late 18th and 19th century. Right. But we've really abandoned it over mm. the past 30 years. Uh, other nations have leapfrogged past us in terms of their ability to be extending college graduation to their young citizens. And uh, my, my, the puzzle for me was why? How mm. has this happened politically? Why have we allowed this to happen? Mm. So that's what I'm looking at in the new book. All right. Any initial findings you can hint at? or you? Uh, yes, I could. Um, it's a... It's a a story that I'm feeling quite riveted by at huh. the moment. Um, it's uh, very discouraging. I mean, what I'm finding over time is that it's not that public opinion has changed. The public's as supportive as, as it long has been mm. for helping college students, helping Americans to receive advanced education. And it's not that policymakers have ignored this problem because we're actually, uh, in recent years, spending more money on it. The, the amount of money had lagged during the 80s and early 90s, but it's increased again recently. The problem is the way in which we're doing it. Hmm. And yet again, the submerged state uh, <laughs> rears its head here because huh. we're, spend, we're spending a lot of money on uh, policies that help vested interests quite a bit, like hmm. for-profit colleges. Right. Um, until recently, the bank-based lending system, although that really was reformed under the Obama administration. Hmm. Um, we've created new policies like these tax expenditures, but they don't expand access to college hmm. uh, for anyone. They just help people who would be going anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are, um, because our, our policy, uh, the policies that we're investing in so much these days are really not... Um, ones that can succeed in expanding access to college. Hmm. We're, we're doing very poorly at this um, long-held American um, aspiration to expand opportunity and to, through higher education, to enable more people to participate as active citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's a pretty grave situation. Interesting. And yeah, and, and recently it's come up, obviously, in states making huge cuts to yes. investments in higher education. I mean, that's been yeah, huge exactly. here at the U of M and across the country, so... Exactly. Yeah. No, it's also happened on the state level, and that's uh, very important. Uh, Through much of our history, the federal government helped to encourage the states to take action, and then they invested a great deal in Uh public education. Uh, When federal government started to recede from doing this itself in the 1980s, for a long time, 
uh, right into the mid-90s, states were helping to make up the difference, and mm. they were continuing to invest a lot in their public universities and colleges. But uh, then it got to a point where they couldn't uh, or uh, chose not to. Right. And, uh, of course, that's gotten much worse with the mm -hmm. recession. Uh, and it, you know, makes a big difference in terms of expanding access to college exactly. because uh, for people who it's a question of whether or not they go to college, if tuition has increased in their local public universities and colleges, it's, uh, it's really a disaster for them. Yeah. Uh, sad. Well, we'll look forward to reading your book Thank when you. it comes out. And for anyone who's interested in uh, what we've been talking about today, you can check out Dr. Mettler's book, The Submerged State. Dr. Mettler, thanks so much for joining me today. Great to be with you. Thank you. All right, that's our show. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon.